If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews once again. And this morning we are in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to read together the first uh, 13 verses. So when you get there, would you rise out of reverence for God's word and let us read these things as an act of worship before the Lord. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the sufficient word of God. You may be seated. This morning, our passage in Hebrews chapter 4 continues right on from chapter 3. And if you recall from chapter 3, Hebrews had begun to talk about this rest of God that was mentioned by the psalmist David in Psalm 95. And it's here in chapter 4 that Hebrews now goes in deeper to talk about the rest of God, what it is and what the consequence is of failing to enter into God's rest. And it is, it is clear, I think, in this passage that the rest of God is his heavenly presence. And Hebrews doesn't use the word heaven here in this passage, but that is definitely what he is talking about here. To enter into God's rest is to enter into his presence in heaven. 
And therefore, this morning, as we study this passage together, be fully aware that we are talking about heaven. And when we talk about heaven, I think there's something very important that we should remember, that heaven is more than just a place. It is a place, Scripture talks about it as a kingdom, but it is more than a place. It is a relationship. When we think of heaven as if it is just a place, then we begin to think of it as if it's a travel destination, like Hawaii or Disney World. And I think when we begin to think that heaven is just a travel destination, then there are two things that can begin to happen in our minds. First of all, we begin to connect the happiness and joy of heaven with the place and not the one who dwells in that place. So our minds shift towards thinking about the streets of gold and the mansions on the hillside and our Christian loved ones with whom we will be reunited and the glory of no more pain and no more sorrow. And then these things become the chief reason that we want to go to heaven. So that can happen. We begin to think of heaven as a what and not a who. But none of these things ought to be the main reason that we are longing after heaven and sighing after heaven. The the real reason that we should be longing after going to heaven is that we get to enter into the presence of God himself. It should be God that we should have our, our eyes fixed upon. He is the one who provides that eternal joy and deepest happiness. And the second thing I think that can happen when we think of heaven as a travel destination is that then we begin to think in terms of geography. And so we begin to disassociate God with heaven such that he can be in his little corner of heaven and I can be in my mansion in my corner of heaven and then I don't have to, I don't have, to have all that much to do with God. But we have to realize that heaven is the very presence of God. To enter heaven is like being allowed to enter into the throne room of the emperor. It means entering behind the curtain in the temple of the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. And therefore, the privilege of entering into heaven means entering into close and intimate relationship with God, into an eternal communion with him. And so this morning, when Hebrews is going to talk about entering into the rest of God, into the Sabbath rest of God, he is talking about entering into communion with God, into his presence. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the joy and the bliss that Adam and Eve experienced was not based on the beautiful garden that they were in, but rather it was because they walked with God daily. They were in intimate communion with their creator. And so when they fell into sin, that communion was broken and they were ejected from the garden. But worse, they were ejected from the presence of God. So when we talk about entering into the Sabbath rest of God, what we're really talking about is entering into that that deep communion with him in his very presence. And so this morning we're going to look at three points out of our passage. First of all, we're going to look at the promise of entering God's rest. That's verses 1 to 3. 
the promise of entering God's rest. Secondly, we're going to ask, well, what is the rest of God? That's verses 4 to 10. And thirdly, this morning, we're going to look at the result of failing to enter God's rest, verses 11 to 13. So the promise of entering God's rest, what is the rest of God, and the result of failing to enter God's rest. So, so look with me at verse 1 this morning of our passage. It says, once again, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This verse opens up the chapter with the word, therefore. Hebrews is saying, because of everything I said in chapter 3, here is now the result. God is still offering the promise of entering into his rest. The door is still open. The opportunity is still available. The entrance is not yet closed. The promise still stands. But if that's the case, be very afraid if you have failed to reach God's rest. Shake yourself up from your apathy and ask yourself, have I failed to reach God's rest? Do I have genuine faith in Jesus Christ or is it all maybe an act? Do I have a hardened heart that is disobedient and rebellious because of unbelief? Well, this morning, fill your heart with healthy fear, the healthy fear of the Lord that trembles in awe before him and repents before it is too late. Hebrews is saying here that a great salvation is here. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. So don't fail to enter into it. And we must remember that Hebrews is talking primarily to those Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to Judaism, giving up on, on Jesus and going back to Moses. And so Hebrews is saying here, if you do that, if you go back to Judaism, back to Moses, then you will fail to reach God's rest. For you will have rejected his promise of entering it. But it's the same application for us today to go back to our old life, to our old habits, our old patterns of behavior. It means turning our backs on Jesus. It also means failing to enter into God's rest. Why? Because we have, quote, lost our faith? No. Because our disobedience and our apostasy, our turning away, it reveals that we never had genuine faith in the first place. And so that's why Hebrews says here, fear, tremble over this. Verse 2 says, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So verse 2 is saying here that the children of Israel who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, they received good news. They heard a gospel. Just like we have received and we have heard a gospel. And the gospel that those Israelites heard back then was a gospel of deliverance and salvation and a promised land. 
And the gospel that we have heard is also a gospel of deliverance and salvation and a promised land. But what was the problem back then? The problem back then was that those Israelites only listened to the gospel. They did not accept it by faith. The gospel went in one ear and out the other. They did not put their trust in the gospel that they heard. And so then no obedience flowed from that faith. And this is why we say that, that coming to church doesn't save anyone. You can come to church week after week, month after month, year after year for your whole life. And you can hear the gospel Sunday in and Sunday out. But if you don't unite your listening to the gospel with your faith in the gospel, then all of this coming to church will be of absolutely no benefit to you. Just as it was no benefit to those Israelites so long ago. And verse 3 in our passage confirms that it is through faith that we enter into God's rest. Faith, belief, and trust are all talking about the same thing. Whenever we see in the Bible the word faith, or the word belief, or the word trust, it's actually all the same Greek word. It's just English. We have so many words for everything. But faith, belief, and trust are all the same thing. They're all talking about the same thing. Faith trustingly believes in God. Belief Faithfully trusts in God. Trust faithfully believes in God. It's all one united idea. And true faith results in obedience. The fruit of true faith is obedience. And that is why Hebrews has been saying that disobedience and rebellion reveals a false faith. So because God is still holding out the promise of entering his rest, examine your heart. To see if you are putting genuine faith in the gospel so that you do not fail to enter into his rest. Our second point this morning is to ask, what is the rest of God? What is it? It's in verses 4 to 10 that Hebrews explains what the Sabbath rest of God is. So look with me at verse 4. He says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. And so what Hebrews is doing here in verses 4 and 5 is Hebrews is making a connection between two passages of Scripture. He is linking together Genesis chapter 2, where it said that God rested on the seventh day. And he's linking that together with Psalm 95, where God swears, over my dead body shall they enter my rest. So it's, it's the word rest that connects Genesis chapter 2 with Psalm 95. The connection between the two passages is this idea of rest. So on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his creative activity. And he set apart the seventh day as holy, the day of Sabbath rest. But when David makes a reference to God's rest in Psalm 95, Hebrews takes it as an 
indication that the Sabbath rest of God is more than simply resting on the seventh day of the week. It means more than the promised land of Canaan. It means that we can enter into God's seventh day cessation of work, into true and complete rest. Entering into God's rest means entering into his presence, where we get to rest in God's restfulness. So verse 6 continues, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and because those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So in verse 6, we see why did the children of Israel fail to enter into God's rest? Why did they fail? Verse 6 tells us that it was because of disobedience. Because of disobedience, it says. And if you're reading out of the King James Version this morning, there it gives the reason as unbelief. So, well, which one is it? Is it disobedience? Or is it unbelief? And the answer is it's both. The Greek word that, that Hebrews chooses to use here carries both the connotation of disobedience and unbelief or disbelief. So this means it's the kind of disobedience that flows out of not believing. It's the kind of idea where one says, I don't believe, and so I don't obey. Or I disobey because I don't believe. And this is important for us to understand. Because there are times as believers when we stumble and we fall into disobedience. And that's what sin is, this disobedience. And for Christians with a tender conscience, we may, we may begin to think that a disobedient sin means that we don't have a true faith. But that's an example not of a disobedience flowing out of disbelief, but rather it's a disobedience that has happened in spite of belief. Scripture tells us repeatedly that the Christian life will mean struggling with the flesh. And in our weakness, there will be times of sin. But these are temporary and momentary stumbles. It's not an extended pattern of behavior flowing out of disbelief. It's the disobedience that flows from disbelief that disqualifies someone from the rest of God. In verse 7, Hebrews tells us that because David said in, in Psalm 95, because he uses the word today, saying that in his own day there was still an opportunity to enter into God's rest, then therefore that means that the same opportunity is available for us in our today. In 2019. Verse 8 is a key verse. Because Hebrews reasons here that if the children of Israel under Joshua had truly entered God's rest by entering into the promised land of Canaan. Then David, many years later, David would not have had a reason to continue talking about God's rest. But because David continues to talk about God's rest then that means that Joshua did not actually give the children of Israel rest in the promised land when he led them in. 
What does that all add up to? Well, well, that means that then there is a greater spiritual rest of God. Let's say a capital R, rest. And this is what the Holy Spirit through David is talking about in the 95th Psalm. So what is the rest of God? What is the capital R, rest, the Sabbath rest of God? Well, it is entering into communal relationship with him. On the basis of faith. So verses 9 and 10 it says. So then there remains a Sabbath rest. For the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest. Has also rested from his works. As God did from his. So the ultimate Sabbath rest of God is heaven. It's his heavenly presence. It is the resting from works. It means resting with him. Resting in him. Perfectly and completely. But the beautiful thing is, is that this resting in him actually begins in this life. When we truly rest in him by faith. We lay down our works in order to rest in his grace. We no longer trust in our own good works to earn God's approval. Instead, we rest completely in God. And so this morning, today... Are you resting in God? Resting in His grace to bring you to His eternal Sabbath rest? Are you in restful communion with God through faith in the sacrifice of His Son on the cross? Or are you living in the disobedience that flows from unbelief? Our third and final point this morning is the result of of failing to enter into God's rest. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This is now the second time that Hebrews has given us a dire warning in this passage. The first time was in verse 1, where Hebrews says that we should be afraid to fail To enter into God's rest. Now he's saying, let us strive to enter that rest. What does it mean to strive? It means to push hard, to make every effort, to labor, to give our all. So we are to strive to enter into God's rest. But wait just a minute. We enter God's rest by faith and we rest in him, not by works. So why is Hebrews suddenly talking about striving here? It's because he does not want us to sit back on the couch and prop up our feet and twiddle our thumbs. True faith gets to work because true faith obeys. We are not to give up. Instead, we are supposed to push on, to push hard, to strive, to labor for the master. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Philippians. He says, work out your salvation with fear. And trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it says here that we're supposed to strive to enter into that Sabbath rest of God, Hebrews says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Here is that word, disobedience, again. It's the same word as we looked at earlier. That can also mean unbelief. 
We can think of it as, as disobedience slash unbelief. So that means it's the kind of disobedience that flows out of an unbelieving heart. In this verse, Hebrews is once again exhorting us to examine ourselves, to make sure that we do not have a disobedient, disbelieving heart that leads to a falling away. True faith is one that hangs in there. False faith is one that falls away, that gives up, that turns away. So what's the big deal then? What's the big deal if we don't make it into God's rest? What's the consequence? Why is Hebrews so concerned about us striving to enter into it? Why is he so concerned that we must fear lest we fall short of it? It's because of what the consequence of failing into God's rest is. It's because only wrath remains outside of God's, re of God's rest. That's the choice. Rest or wrath. And Hebrews doesn't say that directly here. It's implied. He doesn't use the word wrath here. He doesn't talk about hell here. But he does put the judgment of God on full display. Look at verse 12 and 13 again. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul, to the spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 is a very familiar verse. I'm sure you've heard this verse many times. Because usually we use this verse to talk about the Bible, to talk about Scripture as the Word of God. And we say, the Word of God is, is, a, is a living and active thing. It's a sharper than a two-edged sword. But the problem is, is, is that doesn't really seem to fit the context that we have been studying. Because Hebrews has not been talking about Scripture here. And so if he were suddenly talking about Scripture, that would be a hard right turn. That would be somewhat out of the blue to, to start suddenly talking about Scripture. Instead, what is Hebrews talking about here? He's talking about the judgment of God. That when he speaks, when a word of judgment comes forth from his sacred mouth, it pierces to the very depth of our souls. Hebrews is saying that there is no nook, there is no cranny in our hearts that can hide from God's judgment. He knows us better than we know ourselves. His word of judgment pierces to the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And one day we will all stand before him naked and exposed to give an account of ourselves. And so we can fool people with our outward actions. We can play a good game at church. We can try to impress those around us with an outward show of goodness. But God knows our hearts. He knows whether we have an obedience flowing out of genuine faith or a disobedience flowing from unbelief. And on the day of judgment, his sword, his word, will split us open right to the heart, exposing to all what only he could see. 
And just like those unbelieving and disobedient Israelites who failed to enter into God's rest, which at that time was the promised land, every heart that is found to be disobedient and unbelieving on that day of judgment will fail to enter into God's final Sabbath rest, which is his heavenly presence. And outside of the Sabbath rest of God's heavenly presence, there is only eternal wrath of hellfire, as Scripture testifies. And that is why Hebrews is so earnest here. Because he loves the people that he's preaching to. He does not want any of them to fall short of God's rest. He is so earnest here because he knows what the consequence is of missing out on God's Sabbath rest, that it's a dire consequence. It's a matter of life and death. It's the difference between heaven and hell. Therefore, brothers and sisters, like Hebrews says, let us strive to enter into that heavenly rest. Let us make sure that we have not fallen short of it. By faith, let us rest from our works Resting in the grace of God alone. But as we rest in him, let us push on to obedience and to good deeds. For by faith, in this life, we have already entered into restful communion with God. And that's like a little glimpse, a little preview of the glorious things to come. But be warned. Be warned of the judgment of God. That if you have a disobedient heart of unbelief, then yes, a a time will come when the secret things of your heart will be laid bare and exposed by the judgment of God on that great and terrifying day. But praise and thanksgiving be to God who still holds out the promise of entering into his rest up until today, that we can enter into his heavenly presence through genuine faith in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to continue on with next week. How our great high priest makes access into God's heavenly rest possible. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the earnestness of Hebrews who pushes us to to ask ourselves, do I have a genuine faith that leads to obedience or a false faith that that leads to disobedience? And Father, that is only a question that we can answer in, in the depths of our hearts. But Father, I pray that we would fear the judgment of God. That one day, the word of God is going to pierce our hearts and divide us to the very depths of ourselves. That we will have to give an account one day. And all those who are are relying on their good deeds and their good works to save them will experience the full measure of your wrath because none of us can ever be good enough. But Father, we thank you that we have a high priest who offered a perfect sacrifice on the cross. 
so that in a certain way we don't have to wait to enter into your rest. We have already entered into your rest by faith. But Father, I pray that our restfulness would not turn to apathy or laziness. That rather as we meditate upon the the magnanimity of your grace and how great your mercy is, that that would actually spur us on to strive and to push and to fight and to struggle so that you would be glorified in our lives. That like the Apostle Paul said, we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling at the same time knowing that you have done everything for us. That it is you who are, who are working within us to work and to will according to your good purpose. And so Father, let us have hearts that tremble before you where we know that we don't deserve your grace, we don't deserve to enter into your rest. But because you have offered the promise of entering your rest, even up till today, I pray, Father, that we would not fall short of it. But that in genuine faith and genuine repentance, we would fall before you and declare that you are God and there is no other. So, Father, I pray that you would also encourage us this day that as we may be feeling weak or tired or weary or downhearted, Father, that you would refresh us in the knowledge that we can rest in you. We can truly lay down our good works because Christ has offered the greatest and most supreme work possible. So that, Father, we are not saved by works, but we are saved by a work, the work of Jesus Christ. And that by faith we have laid down our good works to enter into your rest. So, Father, give us that glimpse of communion with you, the joy of intimacy with you, that communion and fellowship that only you can give. May that be balm to our souls. May that be the healing ointment to our hearts. And may that be the the medicine for our minds, Father, to reflect on the gospel and its glory so that you may receive the glory and honor from our lives. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' precious, mighty name we pray. Amen.